more about Ephesians over the last, uh, plus today, seven weeks. Seven weeks in Ephesians. Um, I have been thoroughly blessed um, doing this study and preparing the Word um, to, to bring every week. Um, I've had to go deeper than I ever have before into the Ephesians, and it's really surprised me how much I thought I knew, but I really didn't. That's what really studying the Bible does. You kind of go in with your lens of like, yeah, I've read this before, and it's like, wow, I didn't actually stop to think about that. I didn't actually stop to... Um, to uncover all the layers um, behind some of the things that are written in our Bible, and I've really enjoyed it. And today we come to the conclusion, we are reading uh, from Ephesians chapter 6, um, and, and I just wanted to give a really quick recap first. Um, in the first week when we opened Ephesians, we talked about how Paul wasn't writing this letter uh, to the church in Ephesus because there was any um, clear issue that he needed to address. Rather, he was wanting to encourage the church in Ephesus. And as we dug into the cultural background of what was taking place in Ephesus, we learned that uh, the church in Ephesus was living in the shadow of one of the ancient wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. Um, the Temple of Artemis was, uh, uh, was fantastic. It was seen as one of the premier wonders of the world. Uh, people were going there and they assumed, when you think of Ephesus, you thought of the Temple of um, Artemis. And, and, and these people, these people who said, I'm wanting to follow Jesus, would necessarily have been sidelined in society because you're not worshipping Artemis anymore, and so you do not get access to the bank of Ephesus, which is in the temple. You do not get access to all the, uh, um, uh, the different trade guilds because all the trade guilds are associated with the temple of Artemis. And so to be a Christian in Ephesus meant that you are necessarily sidelined. And so Paul writes this letter to these people who are feeling sightline, and he says, guess what? God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. You have got it all from God. And what God is doing is that He's revealing His amazing plan to all of us, and that plan is that you are now part of His household. You are now part of His temple. And I think that Paul was deliberately playing God's temple, which is us, versus the temple of Artemis. He said, look at the temple of Artemis. Pretty amazing. Look at the temple of God. It's going to be so much better. It is fantastic. And that's God's plan, that you are part of something so much bigger. God blesses you so that you get to be a part of this amazing body of Christ. And then he says that we need to make every effort to keep the unity, to protect the unity that is within the body of Christ. And he says that that is something that is our responsibility. He then goes on to also share that even though um, uh, we are to protect the unity, is not by becoming uniform, we're not all supposed to become like each other, but instead we have each been individually graced with a different gift that then allows us to serve the body of Christ in building His unity. Our gifts are not for me to show off and have a good time with. 
Our gifts are to serve the body so that the body will continue to mature and build itself up in love. That's what uh, the book of Ephesus tells us. And then he uh, goes on to describe this whole understanding of the old humanity versus the new humanity. The old humanity is living for themselves. The old humanity is um, darkened in understanding. The old humanity is given over to excessive desires. But the new humanity that God has created us to already have is one that lives with, within the body. And so he encourages us not to live in the old, but that we can see that we already have access to the new and that we can and should live in the new. That's where life truly is. All right, so I've done, probably not done this justice in this summary. Um, all the podcasts are available on our website. Um, but I wanted to just highlight, you know, we talked about how the first half of uh, the book of Ephesus is about what God has done. Is about the amazing blessings that God has given to us. And the second half of Ephesus is about our responsibility, is about protecting the unity, is about living with one another. That's our responsibility. We also talked about how every time you see the word you in our English translations, Y-O-U, it is never an individual, it's always a collective you. And so I want you to hold all of that in mind, because as I read the next passage, I believe that the next passage in Ephesus is one of the most misunderstood or misused passages in churches. And I will, be one of, uh, I will admit that I'm one of those that probably misunderstood it because I read it out of context. And so as I read it, you'll probably start thinking about it as well. All right, so let's get into it. Ephesus, uh, sorry, Ephesians 6 verse 10, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Very famous passage, armor of God. And um, when I read this passage, I often think that God is speaking to me. And God is saying, hey, Nate, there are spiritual forces out to get you. They are out to get you. And so you be ready, and you take on this special armor that I have created specially for you, and you better put it on, because if you don't put it on, those forces of darkness are going to get you. They are going to find a weakness, they are going to weasel in, and they are going to tear you down. But I have prepared you with this special armor that I made specifically to your body type, your body shape, and your capabilities, and so you need to put on this special suit of armor. That's how I see it. Anyone else see it like that? It's kind of this noble, like, oh, wow, put on the armor of God. It's like James Bond getting ready for his next mission, right? And you know one thing about James Bond? James Bond don't need anyone else. James Bond has got the, the guns and the cars, and he's going to fight this mission by himself. And that's the kind of picture that I used to have about the armor of God. I used to think that it was God charging me to protect me and get me ready for my life that I'm supposed to have in this world. 
And I remember when I was growing up, I went to a, a, a small group with my youth group, and we're doing a study on the armor of God uh, specifically, and we got to the last week, and um, uh, my group leader was saying, hey, there's one thing about the armor of God that we haven't spoken about. Uh, anyone want to guess? And at that time, I was about 13, 14. I was a smart aleck. I always wanted everyone to think that I was really super smart. And so I came out off the top of my head, and I was like, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is how heavy the armor of God is, Right? because it's going to be heavy. And I looked around, making sure that everyone was kind of like smiling and making a bit of a joke. Ha, 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 I made it so funny. And, um, but my leader was dead serious. He was like, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. The armor of God is heavy. And you need to get ready. What are you doing every morning to get yourself ready for this heavy armor of God? What are you doing? Are you praying enough? Are you reading your Bible enough? Because if you don't put the armor on, the enemy is going to get you. And I remember sitting there going like, are you serious? Like God wants to give me this amazing gift, but he's going to make it so heavy that if I kind of fail and stuff up in my life, I forget to pray. Oh no, the helmet's kind of fallen off. Ah, oh, enemy's going to shoot me right between the eyes. You know, I got this picture and I was like, I was like 14, right? I'm like, oh crap. <laughs> what am I going to do about this? This is going to be really, really hard. That was a picture I got. And I carried it with me. I was like, every time I felt, uh, uh, you know, a little bit down, I felt uh, a little bit discouraged, or I felt, you know, anger or lust or whatever, I was like, oh man, it's stuffed up again. That stupid armor doesn't stay on, does it? That was a picture I got. Except that that's not the picture that is in Ephesians. Because every single you, it's not about you, it's about us. Every single you that is written in the book of Ephesians is not about you, it's about we. And when you think about an army getting ready with their armor, no soldier is thinking, oh, I better get my armor on because I'm going to get tasked with this lone wolf mission. Any soldier that is tasked with a lone wolf mission is a suicide mission. Rambo does not exist. Rambo is a piece of fiction. Why do you think there are no more movies about Rambo? Because somehow we've kind of come to terms with the fact that one guy with one machine gun cannot kill a hundred enemies without getting shot. We know that if we lone wolf it in this world, we are going to die. And I was in the army. I kind of think about it as a fake army. Never fought a war. But I did some training, and I was in the Singapore uh, Army, and after basic training, I got tasked with um, going to be a scout in the scout platoon in the 2nd Infantry, um, Singapore Infantry Regiment. Um, and so we had one platoon of us as scouts, and our job were to uh, break off into teams of four, and we would go to find where the enemy is, and then we will report back to the regiment so that they can prepare for battle, or we would uh, do surveillance on a strategic point, or whatever it is. And so we had this team of four, and each one of us had a different role in this team. 
Uh, we had two sergeants. Their job was to make the decisions and to read the map to get us to the place. Um, and then my mate, uh, he was a signaller, and so he needed to have the signal pack ready so that we could comms back to uh, the regiment and tell them what was going on. So his job, really important. I had a crap job. I'll be honest. I was the scapegoat. My job was to carry this uh, useless piece of um, uh, rifle uh, that was about 1.8 meters tall long. Uh, my height... Literally, my weapon was as tall as me, and basically, if my team was ever discovered doing our mission, I was to lay covering fire and let them run away. So I actually was the lone wolf. <laughs> my job was to die on behalf of everyone. Literally, no, that was my job. I'm not even joking. That was my job. Um, but as we would prepare for these missions, right, we all have different roles. And in particular, the signaler had the worst job at preparing because the signal pack is literally about that big, uh, weighs about uh, 15 kilos, and then on top of that, he needed to carry two extra batteries because if we don't have batteries, the signal set doesn't work. And the, uh, the battery was literally the size of a brick and weighed about five bricks. And so um, he did not have a nice job at packing his um, equipment. And can you imagine what it would be like, right? Because when we went into the field, we would need to survive for three days at least. And so we'll need to carry enough water for three days. We need to carry enough food for three days. We will need to carry all of the rest of our equipment, including a, a two-meter rifle that... Uh, um, PTSD there. Uh, but we need, I need to carry all this extra ammunition. We will need to carry all this stuff. And can you imagine if everyone on that team went, hey, you do your job and you look after your responsibility and, and we'll go there. Uh, we'll, we'll all be good. Can you imagine the poor guy who is a signaler having to prepare his pack with the extra 15 kilos on top of that, two extra batteries. On top of that, water for three days, food for three days. And he still needed to have his weapon. He still needed to have his ammunition. He still needed to make sure that he had enough of all the different things that we needed to survive for three days. Can you imagine the sergeant going, well, you're the signaler, so you carry all of that. I'm the sergeant. My job is to get us there. So I'll carry the very important maps, which are made of paper which don't weigh a single thing. Can you imagine what would happen when we needed to trek 10 kilometers to our mission, which was normal? The signal guy would probably last the first kilometer, and then he would die from exhaustion. He might have been crawling for a little while, but he would not be able to do that. The team would be compromised because we couldn't help him. What I'm trying to bring across here is the armor of God is not meant for you to carry alone. The mission that we have in this world is not meant to be taken as an individual mission, but rather as a team mission. And so very often as we were preparing for missions, we would look at what needed to be carried and we would try to ascertain as a team of four that we were all carrying as much as possible an equal load so that it would give us the best possible chance of making this mission work. Why do we not approach that when it comes to our faith? 
Why do we not have that kind of thinking when it comes to our mission on this earth? Why is it that the armor of God is something that we carry by ourselves rather than see that this is a team effort, that I'm struggling to have my helmet on right and maybe you could give me a hand or maybe my breastplate is falling off. Can you please tighten it up for me? Can you watch me? Can you make sure that I've got what I need to get through today? Why is it that we go through life and we think that every time we face a difficulty, we need to face it alone. That has never been the case in the biblical story. Rather, we are meant to put on the full armor of God. In fact, I had this thought, right? How many bodies of Christ are there? Yeah, not a trick question, one. So technically speaking, how many armors of God are there? One. Maybe I don't own the armor of God. Maybe God didn't make the armor of God to fit my body specifications. But maybe when I am part of the body of Christ, the body of Christ is equipped with the armor of God. So why do I need to check my armor in the mirror every morning when I'm not checking my heart to see whether I'm living in unity with the rest of the body? Why am I not checking whether, no, no, I, I, I'm not... I'm not protecting the unity. I'm not in the body right now. I'm feeling estranged. I'm feeling like a non-participant in what is taking place. That is far more important than whether you have done enough prayer in the morning to keep your breastplate on. And can I just make a note about this spiritual forces that we are fighting against? We've spoken about this, I think, in week two or three in this series. When Paul is talking about the spiritual forces that we are at war with, he's not talking about individual little demons that are trying to get into your mind. He's talking about how the enemy influences structures in our society. And yes, maybe there's some individuals that are impacted by that, but our society is being shaped by these forces. So we need to look at things like our culture rather than waiting to see whether a demon's going to pop up in front of our face. What does the enemy scheme to do? The whole book of Ephesians is about unity. And I wager that the number one thing that the enemy does to us as Christians is to cause disunity. Because when you're out of the body of Christ, you've got no protection. You've got no one to see how you're going. You've got no one to check in on your wounds. You've got no one to check in on your supplies. You've got no one to check in on you. So when you take on the cultures of this world, you are listening to the schemes of the enemy. Let me give you an example. Our world is so caught up in radical individualization. What I need, what I want, what I'm going through, my desires, every movie, every song that is produced by pop culture has those overtones. And the more we buy into it, the less I feel the need for other people. So we need to come back to what God is saying in order that we can stand. And that's what he's saying in Ephesians chapter 6, that we can stand. We put on the full armor of God, verse 13, so that when the day of evil comes, what's the day of evil? This is the day that the enemy is at work, which is today. That you can be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. 
And then he goes on and he says, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So that's the armor of God. That's like literally, it's, it's, every boy's dream is one of those cool things. We even bought a picture for Sam in his bedroom. It's like, this is the armor of God. But do you know that Paul didn't actually, he wasn't the first person to write about the armor of God. Paul actually borrowed this idea from the book of Isaiah. And I'm going to put up this next screen, a whole bunch of verses. And you can see that Paul actually borrows a lot of the ideas of the armor of God from the Old Testament. So for example, Isaiah 59, you can see that he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation. Isaiah 11 Five, righteousness is a belt, truthfulness as the belt. There we go again. He's made my mouth like a sharp sword. Uh, and, 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 and Isaiah 52 verse 7, how lovely are the mountains, are the feet of those bringing the gospel, the gospel of peace. Isaiah, when he was writing those passages, he was specifically looking into how, and he was prophesying about the Messiah coming and what the Messiah would bring with him. The Messiah wears the armor of God. The Messiah brings the armor of God. Our responsibility is to simply take on what Jesus has already brought. The metaphors and the pictures of salvation as helmet and righteousness as a breastplate, yes, we could look into those, and there are many great truths about how maybe righteousness covers our heart and how salvation covers our mind, and those are probably accurate and good and well, but what I want to bring across today is that the armor of God is not something that God has crafted for you. The armor of God is something that God crafted ages ago for the Messiah to bring for the body of Christ to then take on because... The Messiah is the head of the church. When we come under the Messiahship of God, we are protected by the armor. That's where the armor already is. I don't have to worry about how heavy it is. I simply have to live in unity and within the body of Christ. But then he continues and he says, verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. I believe that Paul, like in, I'm reading this in the NIV, and the NIV actually breaks that off into another paragraph. But if you look into other uh, translations, they actually continue on. Take the helmet of salvation, verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, comma, and pray in the Spirit and praying the Spirit is part of the armor of God. Why is prayer part of the armor of God? Because prayer is how we activate the armor of God. That's what I believe, that when we pray, we are connecting within the body, and we are living in the protection and the capabilities of the armor of God. That's why prayer is so important. He says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. All. You don't have to be learned in prayer language in order to pray. Bring your prayer. Your prayer is a kind of prayer. It's a type of prayer. Just bring it anyway. But guess what? 
Don't just pray for yourself. In fact, don't really care to pray too much for yourself. Pray for one another. That was the emphasis that Paul was trying to make here. Remember, he says, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for yourself. No, no, no. He said, always be praying for one another. I think some of us lose the ability uh, to have the protection of the armor of God because our prayers are always about ourselves. And when I was young and my youth group leader was telling me that I needed to pray in order to put on the armor of God, you know what I was saying? God, help me put on this helmet of salvation. Help me put on the breastplate of righteousness. Help me put on the, the belt of truth. Help me. And I wasn't praying for anyone else because I was so worried whether I was carrying the armor of God or not. But guess what? It's like, I'm going to start praying for you. And you're going to start praying for me. And we're going to keep praying for each other. And something begins to happen. And I think that that's how the armor of God is meant to operate. Let me put it this way. Spiritual warfare is not about me casting out demons. But it's about me interceding on your behalf. Every time you give someone else a prayer request and you say, I need you to pray for me, you're doing spiritual warfare. You're not being selfish. You're doing spiritual warfare. Every time you say, I have a need and I need someone else to be praying for me, you are saying, I'm making sure that the armor of God is covering all of us. We are polishing our armor. We are getting it ready for battle. And we are defeating the schemes of the enemy through a simple prayer request. We've got an app. And on the app, there's a whole prayer request function. That function so far sucks because no one writes any prayer requests except Nate. I must be the only needy person in this whole flipping church because no one ever says anything on there. How are we practicing spiritual warfare over our church when no one knows how anyone else is going? Now, I know there's lots of other channels and I know that lots of people prefer to go to someone that they know. I get it. But can we also practice something a bit more radical in terms of unity? Can we actually say, I, I, I want the church to have this opportunity to pray for me? Because this is important. Come on, let's look at this. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, pray also for me. This is not Paul the bum. This is Paul the flippin' apostle who set up this church and he says to them, you better keep praying for me too. What was he doing? He was being an example of vulnerability. Let's read on. He says, pray also for me that wherever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will be fearlessly making known the mysteries of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Paul's not saying, look at me, I'm so good. Paul's saying, I'm in chains, guys. Sometimes I'm scared. Sometimes I don't know if I can continue to carry out my mission. So please pray for me. If Paul knew how to be vulnerable and ask a bunch of people in the local church to pray for him, why don't we? Why don't we? He goes on, verse 21, Tychicus the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord will tell you everything so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. I'm sending him to you for this very 
purpose. What's the purpose? So that you know how I'm doing. No, Paul understood what it meant to be part of the community of the church. He would send someone to inform the church how he was doing. You know, I think in our minds sometimes, I'll admit it, I'm like, why Paul? Aren't we all supposed to be selfless? Aren't we all supposed to, you know, not be like, doing all this kind of stuff. And it's like, no, Paul's like, no, no, no. This is how you be part of the community. It's not about niceties. It's not about performing as though we are perfect. It's about being real. Paul's saying, I, I, I need you to know how I'm doing so that you can pray for me. He then finishes off with this prayer, peace, to the brothers and sisters. By the way, brothers and sisters is really interesting words. It literally means from the same womb. It's a really cool word. In the Greek, it has a connotation of from the same womb. This is Paul writing to a bunch of people that were probably born in Ephesus. They were not his literal womb siblings. But there's this radical unity that Paul sees in the body of Christ that he would say to you, hey, we're basically from the same womb. And I want peace for you. And I want peace amongst us. So that's the book of Ephesians. And this morning, I want to finish off by doing communion like we did, much like we did at the start of this series. Um, the host team have prepared at the back um, the cups and also uh, the loaves of, well, the loaf of bread that we chopped up. And can I just ask, I know that this might not be something that everyone is comfortable with, especially in the light of COVID and all of that, but I'm pretty sure if you're sick, please let people know. That's cool. But there was something special, and many people said this, when we, in small groups, could actually break the bread with one another and have communion with one another, and then from there, pray for one another. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. It doesn't have to be an eloquent prayer. It can just be, God, we bring this request before you. If that's all you're comfortable with, at least practice that, and I think that would be awesome. But I also know that communion is something that we do need to take very seriously. What communion is all about is us remembering that Jesus has broken his body and shed his blood for us so that we can be brought into the body of Christ. And so in this moment, if there's anyone here that hasn't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, perhaps you thought that being a Christian is about obeying a whole bunch of rules, is about uh, uh, going through the checklist and, and living out all of those ways. No, Christianity is about understanding that Christ has already done it all, and we are simply living out a new humanity. We're simply learning how to live one of my favorite bands of all time is Switchfoot. And they wrote a song, this is one of the early songs, and I always loved it. But they sang, there's a new way to be human. And I think that's what Christ is saying to each and every one of us. It's a new way to be human. Stop looking to the world. Stop looking to how the world does it. But rather look to Christ because He's the author and finisher of your faith. He is the bringer of life. 
And so with every head bowed, every eye closed, I just want to pray for every person here. But if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you want to invite Him to your life so that He can bring life to you, can you please repeat this prayer after me? Dear Jesus, I invite you into my life. I know that I have sinned. I know that I have missed the mark. But I know that you've come to die for my sins. So cleanse me, Lord. Wash me and make me whole. I invite you into my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Live Church or on Facebook at Live Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.